So we're beginning a study of Isaiah this morning. Alec Motier says that among the prophets, no other equals Isaiah's brilliance of style and metaphor. It's a resting vision of the Holy One of Israel and it's kaleidoscopic vision of God's future restoration of Israel in the world. Alec Motier. John Oswalt says that Isaiah's literary grandeur is unequaled. Its scope unparalleled. Its view of God unmatched. Apart from the Psalms, no other book of the Bible is quoted more often in the New Testament. That should tell you about its significance. In fact, I think that if you were to sit down with the Apostle Paul and ask him, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I'm pretty confident Paul would say, oh, that's easy. Isaiah. Why? Because he quotes it prolifically, especially in his letter to the Romans. Well, frankly, I'm as intimidated as I am excited about this study. Trying to get your arms around Isaiah is like trying to get your arms around a giant sequoia. Those redwoods in California. But I'm comforted by one of the great scholars of Isaiah, Alec Motier. I watched an interview with him. And he said that after he taught Isaiah as a seminary course... And after he wrote the commentary that, quote, I feel as though I got a beginning of a glimmering of how the book hung together. A beginning of a glimmering of how this book hangs together says the scholar on Isaiah. Well, that gives little peon pastors like me hope. Enthusiasm and intimidation as we enter this study. And we're going to do this together. Me and you. Me and Bruno. Probably about 40 weeks. We'll walk through this giant of a book together. And I just am confident that our souls will be enriched. Our faith will be built. I'm praying that if you have not come to Jesus yet, that by the end of our study of Isaiah or somewhere, maybe today, during that study, that you will place your whole faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But I think it would be helpful for me to say it in in advance, and I mean this with all of my heart, that I honestly do not think that there will be a single thing I say throughout the next 40 weeks that will be an original thought. Not one. I'm going to be reading those books. We're going to be having conversations during the week. So if you hear it and it's good, just assume that it came from somewhere else. Probably Alec Mateer, 
or John Oswalt. So this is my accreditation to them right now, instead of quoting them this entire time. If there's something direct, I will quote them, as always, never want to be plagiarizing. But if it's good, just assume it didn't come from me. But it came from me doing some work on behalf of you so that we can come together on Sundays and learn more about God and us and the Lord Jesus Christ through the uh, prophet Isaiah. So this morning, as we begin this study, I would like to begin our corporate study in the same place that I began my own personal study. And that is trying to get an understanding of Isaiah as a whole. So with this giant sequoia in front of us, it'd just be nice to kind of understand what the message of Isaiah is as a whole. And just by the sheer volume, the thickness of that journal that we passed out this morning, you can see that preaching Isaiah in one sermon means that basically we're just organizing Isaiah and showing you the highlights as we go through it. But that's a helpful perspective. Just like it's helpful to look at Google Earth and see the layout of the Earth or to see the shape of the United States or the location of Brazil, wherever that is. So this morning we're going to be doing an overview, Isaiah in one sermon, and that will kind of be like looking at the box top for a puzzle. You get the big picture so that then throughout the next 40 weeks and every time you read it, you'll know how that little piece fits into the big puzzle. So I'd like for you to think with your knowledge of Isaiah already, as I look around the room, there are folks here who have literally taught through Isaiah before. I never have. I've read Isaiah a number of times, but I've never taught through Isaiah. There are some of you who are far more advanced in this than I am already. But how would you summarize the message of Isaiah? What is the message of Isaiah? You think about that with what you know so far. I might ask it a different way. So what do you know about Isaiah? Your answer might be, well, not much. I know that it's quoted a lot. I know it's in the Old Testament. And I know that because it's quoted a lot, some of the most famous pieces of Scripture come from there. But I really don't know what it's about. Well, I hope that you'll leave this sermon this morning knowing the message of Isaiah. And I think that by the time we're done with this sermon, that you'll see that it's actually the gospel according to Isaiah. It's it's an amazing uh, message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So as we get to know Isaiah better, we're actually going to get to know the gospel of Jesus better from the Old Testament. I was talking with Rob uh, just this week, and he said that's one of the things that is so beautiful about Isaiah is that it it causes people to say, wow, the Old Testament really does have the same God, the same promises of the same Messiah, and the same gospel as the New Testament. And we get to, we get to see the New Testament gospel in an Old Testament prophet. It's beautiful. So this morning we're going to begin at the beginning with Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1. Please take your copy of Isaiah. And I know you have one because I handed, well, Elisa and I handed one to everyone as they walked in this morning. Isaiah 1 1. 
And I strongly encourage you to use that journal throughout the next 40 weeks to make your own notes. Wouldn't that be beautiful to just go ahead and go along in this journey with us? Just dive right in. And even if you're not a note taker, use that journal at home and take your own notes as you read, just summarize on the page beside it. But here's Isaiah 1.1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now from just this one verse we get a lot of information about an overview of Isaiah. First of all, we see that this is God's perspective. Look at verse 1 again. The vision of Isaiah which he saw. God wanted Isaiah and his people to see something. What did he want them to see? His perspective on their situation. See, we often view life from our own perspective. And it's a perspective that's filtered through our own sin, our friends, our culture, maybe our family. It's sort of like being colorblind sometimes. We, we can't see things the way they really are because our perspective is filtered by the sin within us, the fall all around us. In our perspective, we often see ourselves as better than we actually are. And we often see our situation as more hopeless than it actually is. But friends, God has graciously given us His perspective. Aren't you glad that we have God's perspective for life in His Word? God's showing us the truth about ourselves and our situation. And he tells it to us because of his grace. He wants us to see clearly. He wants us to turn away from our own ways. He wants us to follow him into his blessings. For example, Isaiah chapter 55. Look there. Isaiah 55. When God gives his perspective... He says things like this, Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. He's talking not only to them there and then, but he's talking to us here and now. Friends, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Look at verse 8. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Well, what's the difference between our thoughts and our ways versus God's? Verse 9, God says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
He continues in verse 11, my word, my perspective, my truth, my word, verse 11, that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall, shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Do you see? God wants to give us His perspective so that we can see clearly, turn away from our own ways and turn to Him to follow Him into His blessings, the kind of blessings that all creation will sing and shout and clap their hands about. And so will we as we follow God into them. So first of all, this is God's perspective. Secondly, it's, it's God's perspective to God's prophet. Notice in verse 1-1 again, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz or Amaz. I don't speak Hebrew, so I don't know. So this is God's perspective that he gave to his prophet. Now, prophets are God's servants who bring God's message. Specifically, thus says the Lord. Isaiah was not primarily a clever individual who had all kinds of amazing thoughts and wrote his own book. No, he simply saw what God wanted him to see, heard what God wanted him to hear, and then conveyed that message. He was, at the bottom, a faithful messenger of God. And that's what we have through every writer of the Bible. We have faithful messengers of God who gave us God's perspective through God's prophets. The prophets, especially in the Old Testament, were a bit of a unique breed, and God used them to do some pretty amazing things. They didn't just merely predict, prophesy what God's going to do in the future. They were more like covenant attorneys. Again, clever title, not original with me. It's in one of those books somewhere. They're more like covenant attorneys who reminded God's people of the stipulations of God's covenant with them and pronounced God's um, uh, pronounced to God's people the indictments of God's covenant violations and then called God's people to repentance but reassured God's people that ultimately... God will be faithful to his covenant and that they can come to him confessing their sin and they will be pardoned. We need to hear from prophets too, don't we? Praise God that his word has been faithfully preserved over the years and has come to us and it functions in this same way. We hear the word when we read, we also hear the word when we talk to Christian friends. Praise God for Christian friends who function as prophets and remind us of God's faithfulness to us and call us to faithfulness to Him. 
We hear God's word through faithful elders. Praise God for faithful elders who faithfully teach God's word, all of it. The easy stuff, the hard stuff. The new stuff, the old stuff. Praise God. God's perspective through God's prophet. Finally, for God's people. I say finally at 17 minutes into our sermon and do not think that it's over. We're not going to be dismissing for lunch or recess anytime soon. I say that because that sets us up to understand that God gave his prophet, pardon me, his perspective to his prophet for his people at a certain time and place in history. To understand Isaiah, we have to understand God's people at that time and that place in history, which took me a long time to try to caps, uh, I was going to say capsize, and that might be what happens as a, a result of this sermon, but encapsulate or, or make in, uh, in a nutshell form there for us. God's people. So God gave his perspective, look there in verse 1, to Isaiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of, jo- of Judah. First of all, look that Isaiah's message was to Judah and Jerusalem. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, that might be odd to you. Why doesn't he call them Israel? So Judah and Jerusalem at this point in history, is different than, quote-unquote, Israel. So Isaiah had a ministry for about 40 years, from approximately 740 B.C. to 700 B.C., during the time called the Divided Kingdom. You'll remember that under King David, Israel's greatest King David, Israel was united. David transferred a united, prosperous, blessed Israel to his son Solomon. God continued to bless Israel through King Solomon. Solomon had some pretty reprehensible sin and some pretty reprehensible sons. Solomon passed on the kingdom to his son Rehoboam and Jeroboam, two sons that ended up dividing the kingdom somewhere around 920 B.C. David, oh, by the way, I I have an insert there for you in your your, uh, journal. Take a look at that. The map provided us by... Josh Hahn over here, that insert provided to us, the uh, timeline on the other side provided to us by Graham Goldsworthy. You'll notice, not on the map, but on the timeline, that David is around 1000 BC, and then the kingdom divides between these two warring grandsons of David, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, into Israel to the north and Judah to the south, you can look at your map and see that. Israel to the north had their capital city, Samaria. 
Judah to the south retained Jerusalem as their capital city. And more importantly, the Davidic line of kings through Rehoboam. David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and then all of those descendants like, for example, the four kings mentioned here in Isaiah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were all Davidic kings. God's main plan is going to continue through Judah, not Isaiah. There were about 20 different kings in Isaiah and 20 kings in Judah. The book of Kings and 2 Kings says about the kings, they either did right or did evil in the sight of the Lord. It it will talk about, you know, the king of Israel, this one, and the king of Judah, this one, and they did right in the sight of the Lord, or they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Guess how many 20 out of 20 kings of Israel did right in the sight of the Lord? Zero. They're 0 for 20. Israel is going downhill fast under corrupt, ungodly leadership. And there are about eight out of 20 godly kings in Judah. But only eight. There's like 12 or 13 corrupt kings of God's kingdom on earth, Judah. So we have Israel to the north that encompassed Ten tribes, remember there are twelve tribes, ten tribes to the north, and then Judah in the south, that's just two two tribes, capital city Jerusalem. And by the way, you'll often hear Jerusalem in the book of Isaiah called Zion. So if it's talking about Zion, it's talking about Jerusalem. Talk about Judah. And by the way, when you're reading, every time you hear the word Ephraim, that is another name for Israel to the north. So a lot of times there's conflict between Judah and Ephraim, which means there's conflict, more civil war, more strife between Judah and Israel. So Ephraim is not another location. It's the same as Israel to the north. I say all of that to help us to understand their time in history. It would be just as if we were living in the Civil War. And you would know whether you were from the north or the south. It would matter to you whether you were from the north or the south. And there were cities just like Winchester that had all kinds of conflict going on between the North and the South in the Civil War. So, God's perspective to God's prophet for God's people, Isaiah's message to God's people was specifically to the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem, and more specifically, four different kings. Well, his ministry spanned the reign of four different kings. And do you remember, according to Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah's ministry started? 
in the year that King what? Uzziah died, Isaiah was called into ministry. That happened around 740 B.C. Uzziah dies, Isaiah's ministry begins. Let's talk about these four kings that Isaiah ministered to. Uzziah was an was a good king. Israel, I mean, pardon me, Judah continued to thrive under Uzziah. In fact, he was a military genius. He built machines of war. But 2 Chronicles chapter 26 tells us that when Uzziah was strong, he grew proud, quote, to his own destruction. And he ended up being unfaithful to the Lord. What about his son, Jotham? The second king mentioned in one one is Jotham. Uh, whereas his father Uzziah reigned for 52 years, Jotham had a much shorter reign, only 16 years. In fact, take a look at second kings. I want you to see how one part of the Bible interacts with another part of the Bible. Look at second kings. Maybe you already knew this. Maybe you didn't. Prophets like Isaiah, who are talking to kings like Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, well, they have records in their capital city, just like we have in our capital city, historical records, and we happen to have them as books of the Bible. Second Kings is the historical record of the kings of Israel. Second Kings, chapter 15 2 Kings 15, verse 1 through 7, gives the record of King who? Uzziah. And it says there in verse 3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now drop down to verse 32. It, by the way, it talks about some of the kings of Israel to the north. Now it comes back down to the south again. Look at 2 Kings 15, 32. Now he's talking about the descendant, the son of Uzziah, Jotham. Look at verse 34. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Jotham continued his father's ways. He reigned for about 16 years. He was a good king of Judah. Next chapter, look at 2 Kings chapter 16. Ahaz chapter 16. Look at verse 2. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but, verse 3, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. (laughs) He's following the guys to the north. King Ahaz was a bad king. He was a fearful king. King Ahaz felt all kinds of political and military pressure, and he capitulated to the ungodly nations around him. In fact, Ahaz took Judah into an alliance with Assyria. Judah ended up also in an alliance with Egypt. What is, what's God's nation doing aligning with the former captives? Egypt, or Assyria. Well, 
All of these things are happening under the kings of Judah. That one under Ahaz. Now look at 2 Kings chapter 18. These four Davidic kings in Judah. 2 Kings 18 says that Hezekiah was a godly king. Look at verse 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that David his father had done, he removed the high places. How do you think those idolatrous high places got there? Because Ahaz put them there. But when Hezekiah came in, he removed all of the idolatrous high places. Look at verse 5. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Verse 6, for he held fast to the Lord. Look at verse 7. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. The alliance that Ahaz made with Assyria Now Hezekiah broke with Assyria because he knew that it was wicked and he wasn't going to consort with the enemies. So he broke that. Do you know what that led to? Assyria, who captured the northern tribe of Israel and took them off into captivity in the year 722, also besieged, set siege on, Jerusalem under Hezekiah because he wouldn't be their puppet king any longer because he was going to serve God instead of man. Big superpower Assyria to the east came and set siege around Jerusalem. Which leads to one of the cool stories in the Old Testament right here in Isaiah's Chapter 36, 37. Do you remember the story? Look at chapter 36 and 37. When Hezekiah refused Assyria, that King Sennacherib had 186,000 troops around Jerusalem. Pardon me, 185,000 troops around Jerusalem. And Hezekiah prayed. Look at chapter 37, verse 21. He prayed... And God sent an angel of the Lord and struck down 130, 185,000 soldiers in one night to protect Jerusalem. And in the morning, when Judah went out to look what was happening, there are bodies scattered everywhere because God protected his people under a godly king who trusted him. You see, not only were these kings significant, but so was Isaiah. Because Isaiah was the prophet of God who was encouraging these kings and the people. The essence, in my opinion, at this point in my study, which is so far from beginning to get a glimpse of how this book hangs together. My my nutshell of the message of Isaiah is God saying to His people, trust me, I am the Lord your God. 
trust me. I am the Lord your God. Here was this nation of Judah surrounded. You can look at the map. Surrounded by enemies, including their brothers and sisters Israel to the north. Civil war from the north. Superpowers coming over from the east. A growing superpower in Babylon rising up just a little bit southeast of Assyria, their former enemies, Egypt, all around them, Philistia, Moab, larger, more wicked nations than they, pressure, problems. God says to them through His prophet, trust me, I, am the Lord your God. And the reason that he had to start with trust me was because they weren't. They were turning away from the Lord and trusting in all kinds of other things. So as we look at the book of Isaiah as a whole, there are two main parts. This has been helpful to me big book. It's helpful for me to see pieces. So I say two main parts because there's a third. Right in the middle of the book, chapter 36 through 9 is a historical context. It's very different than all of the rest of the book. Chapters 36 through 9 is historical context specifically about Hezekiah the king. Chapters 1 through 35, God confronts the sin of his people. Chapter 40 through 66, God comforts his people, reassuring them, trust me. Chapter 1 through 35, You've turned away from me. Turn back. You've turned away from me. Turn back. God confronts the sin of His people. Chapter 40 through 66. Turn back because you can trust me. I am the Lord your God. Let's look at those two pieces more closely. Part number one. Chapter 1 through 35, God confronts the sin of his people because they had turned away from him. Look, for example, in chapter 1, verse 4. Bruno is going to be preaching this next week. Chapter 1, verse 4. At the very beginning, God wants his people to have his perspective through his prophet. What's God's perspective? Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have, what's the next word? Forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. God says to Judah, Jerusalem, and specifically at this time, 
Jotham, the king right after Uzziah, God's people have turned their back on God and they're estranged. Some of us know what that feels like to have a relationship that's estranged and broken, isn't it? Especially if you're a parent who you don't have anything but love for your children and yet they don't trust you. They don't want to have anything to do with you because ultimately they don't trust you. God says about his people, you've turned away from me and you're trusting all kinds of other things. For example, your own ability. Under Uzziah, who just died when Isaiah was called into the ministry. Israel was a superpower in their little neck of the woods. And Uzziah had all kinds of a military machine. But do you remember what God's perspective on Uzziah was? He said, When he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. They were trusting in their own strength. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We trust in our own ability to handle our own problems and to make our own success in life. And so we work all the time and we don't trust God. Or we compromise. Maybe we even sin. They didn't just trust their own ability, but they turned to other gods. They trusted in other gods. That's why the the book of Isaiah is full of the impotence of idolatry. God basically makes fun of the rest of the idols, the other gods, and says, okay, let me get this straight. We read this in our reading this morning. You take a block of wood, you cut half of it off to make a fire, and then you make an idol out of the other half and bow down and pray to it? I don't understand that. You have to pick your idols up and carry them around. Listen, I am the God who carried you. I made you. I carry you. Look at the impotence of your idols. Look at chapter 2, for example, verse 8. Their land was filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. They turn to other idols. And then we find out throughout the book that not only do they trust themselves and their gods, but they turn to other nations. Look at chapter 31, verse 1. Chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. Do not look, pardon me, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. See, that's the essence of Judah's sin. When they experience pressure and stress, problems, difficulties, and trouble, Judah turns to something else other than God. They don't ultimately trust Friends, I think that God wants us to see that in our own heart as we study this vision he gave Isaiah. 
God wants to see how we often turn to the resources of of all kinds of child experts rather than His Word for parenting. How we turn to self-help books rather than the tried and truth of God's Word for marriage and success in business. And we could list the ways that we, in fact, show that we don't trust God by turning to other things. Chapters 1 through 35, God confronts their sin, not just the sin of Judah, but God confronts the sin of other nations. For example, take a look at chapter 13. Chapter 13 through 23, we're probably going to do this whole section in two sermons. Because God announces oracles of judgment against 11 different nations. And there's a repeating pattern of exposing the sin and the corruption and the idolatry of these other nations and announcing that they need to repent, they're probably not going to repent, and so then judgment is going to fall. Chapter 13 through 23, God confronts the sin of the nations. Chapter 13, look, Babylon, and then just continue through, Syria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, which is in Syria, Ethiopia, Babylon again, Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem in Judah and Tyre. God confronts sin. Why? Because God is gracious and He does not want to leave us in our sin. Listen, friends, the worst judgment of God is to leave us in our sin. To give us over to what we want naturally. Romans chapter 1 says uh, about God's judgment that he gave them over to their sin. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ that rescues us from our sin rather than God giving us over to our sin. And so what God does in chapter 40 through 66 is after confronting their sin, 1 through 35, Little historical context, 36 through 39. Now, 40 through 66, God comforts his people. When we become aware of God's perspective on our sin, brothers and sisters, we need comfort. When we understand God's perspective on sin and the judgment that will fall on sin, we need comfort. If you think of sin lightly, Isaiah is going to help you to get God's perspective on sin and the comfort of the gospel. Chapter 40 through 66, some of the richest portions of Scripture as God tells his people, you can turn back to me. You can trust me. Here's why. I am the Lord, your God. And the your is very personal. God made a covenant with Judah. And God is going to keep his covenant. So, 
Put on your seatbelt. I don't think you'll be able to flip as fast as I'm going to read, but listen how often God makes this statement in comfort. I am the Lord, your God. Trust me. Don't turn to other nations or to your wealth or to your power. Trust me. I am the only one you can trust. Chapter 41, verse 10. Fear not. I'm with you. Don't be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 41.13 For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It's I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. 42.6 I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. 43, 3. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do you hear God's overwhelming emphasis on His glory as the only one who can be trusted? Not nations, not money, not doctors even. Listen, all of these things have their place. But our ultimate trust has to be in God. Because He's the only one who can be trusted. He continues. Verse 43, 25. I... I, like he wants to emphasize, I, I am the, am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I'm the first, I am the last, and besides me there is no God. We could go on. This list continues on this page, but I'm running out of time. Let me just end with the last one. After making this bold and glorious declaration of his own trustworthiness, God says to his people and all of the nations and you. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Don't turn to what's around you or what's in you. Turn to me, for I am God. That's an open invitation for you today. Listen, your sin will bring judgment <laughs> In those historical context verses, specifically in verse in chapter 38 and 39, God told his people, Judah, that just like your northern counterparts have been raided and taken into captivity in Assyria, rising superpower Babylon is going to come 
and take you captive. But I will redeem you. I will keep my covenant with you, even though you haven't kept yours with me. I will redeem you through. And then Isaiah unfolds three portraits of the Messiah. You want to know why Isaiah is so good? It's because of this right here. Because from beginning to end in Isaiah, there are three portraits of the Messiah. He doesn't just save it for 40 through 66. It's a lot in there. But all throughout Isaiah, he gives portraits of the Messiah. And you could divide Isaiah this way if you wanted to. Chapters 1 through 39, that front half, a portrait of the Messiah as king. It makes sense, doesn't it? Isaiah is talking to the three kings who followed Uzziah. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so God talks to them about their Redeemer being a Messiah king who does what no Davidic king has ever been able to do, and that is rule and reign in true righteousness and peace. God's Messiah is going to come as a king. And then there are those famous chapters that we all read, especially around Christmas time, like Isaiah 11. There will come forth from the shoot, the stump of, uh, of, De- of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He will kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf will lay down with the lamb. The leopard lie down with the young goat, little children will lead wild animals in his kingdom. God's king. Portrait number two, chapter 40 through 55, half of that latter section, the portrait of the Messiah as servant. You remember chapter 40 through 55? Some of the greatest scriptures, especially quoted in the New Testament. There are four songs of this servant in these chapters. Just as God's king will restore righteousness and peace to God's kingdom, now God's servant will suffer for the sins of God's people. the righteous for the unrighteous so that he can bring us back to God. Isaiah 42, look at it. Isaiah 42. Speaking of God's Messiah as servant in this second portrait, 
Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. Friends, that is our gentle and lowly Jesus who suffered the sins of God's people so that he can bring us back to God. God's king, God's servant. And then in the last portion of Isaiah, chapter 56 through 66, we see a portrait of the Messiah as God's conqueror. God's king, God's servant, God's conqueror. And God's conqueror will save God's people by overcoming all of God's enemies. Turn over to Isaiah 61 and we're about finished with this overview. Look at Isaiah 61. Speaking of this conqueror Messiah. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the broken heart to pro- uh, brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, so that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That same conqueror who brings good news of salvation to God's people brings judgment to God's enemies. Look at chapter 63. He is the one who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. But look at verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads in the winepress? Verse 3, answer. I have trodden the winepress alone, says this Messiah conqueror. And from the people, no one was with me. Verse 5, So mine own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. The conqueror who brings salvation for God's people brings judgment. To God's enemies. Friends, that is the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Isaiah. How do we know that for sure? 
because let's finish our time by looking at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Seven hundred years later. Seven hundred years later. After being baptized in the Jordan, spending 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus, in verse 16, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus of Nazareth is God's Messiah, King, servant, and conqueror. Friends, we trust God by following Jesus. We trust God by following Jesus. So let me ask you. When problems and difficulties of life hit, when desires well up inside of you, where do you turn? You turn to all kinds of other things or you turn to the Lord, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. Turn to me, God says. All ends of the earth and you will be saved. I'm really looking forward to this study. May God strengthen our faith in Jesus through it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for your perspective, through your prophet, for your people, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your vision of us and our situation and of how we can be saved from ourselves and from the curse of sin through your King, your servant, your conqueror, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do this for his glory and our good. We praise you in his name. Amen.